Hey there listeners, welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who aren't quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Ashvin, I've got Brian on the phone with me, and we are in the thick of the holiday season. So I want to take a quick moment here to wish all of our listeners a happy holiday from your friends at Horror Movie Club, and happy holidays to you, Brian. Hey, thanks, you too, buddy. Yeah, uh, so to celebrate this season, we've got two episodes for you guys um, that you can use to fill your stockings and sit around a fire and enjoy with your family. Uh, the first is going to be on our Patreon page. We're doing a review of Jack Frost from 1997, not the one with Michael Keaton. Uh, that will be out there on our Patreon page, so feel free to subscribe, or if you're already subscribed, you should be able to find that and listen to that episode. But on this episode today, we're going to be talking about the 1974 film Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark, and starring Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, and Keir D'Elia. In this film, a sorority house gets a rather rough start to their holiday vacation when their sorority sisters start mysteriously disappearing. If you're new to our show, Brian and I are going to have a spoiler-free discussion up front. Then we're going to take a quick break. There'll be some music, and then we'll jump into the plot details. We will go through some spoilers and share our review. Brian, before we kick off here, a completely unrelated question for you. Uh, given it's the holiday season, what is your holiday beverage of choice? In general? Yeah, like uh, alcoholic, non-alcoholic. Is there like a certain drink yeah. you associate with this time of year? I, di- I didn't know if you meant what am I drinking right now. My oh. drink of choice is usually, around the holidays, a Great Lakes Christmas sale. Ah, Nice. They're still putting from that Great out? Great Lakes Brewing Company in Cleveland, Ohio. They're still putting it out. They, oh, never mind. I was just about to go into a lengthy story about <laughs> <laughs> the brewery and realizing nobody cares. No one cares what is it. your <laughs> drink yeah. of choice around the holidays? Oh, man. Um, mine uh, is either an eggnog. Oh, yeah, it's an eggnog. I was going to say maybe like a gingerbread latte or something, but uh, I feel like those have gotten way too sweet. But yeah, really in for like a good old-fashioned uh, eggnog. But nothing better than some eggs, some sugar, and some milk, and whiskey, of course. I like eggnog, too. I'll have to drink more of that this holiday season. And just tell those people half-sweet at your local coffee shop. You That's can be one true. of those high-maintenance customers. <laughs> half, half the sugar, skip the whipped cream. Yeah, you could do that. Yeah, that's true. I'm not sure. I have j- become that. I'd... Really? Uh, yeah. Is this only at, like, Starbucks or, like, even at, like, neighborhood coffee restaurants? coffee shops we have like a neighborhood coffee shop and lately i've been ordering a decaf oat milk latte with half sweet pumpkin spice oh my god how much do these guys hate you i know <laughs> i know <laughs> yeah. uh i'm opposed to any order that's like longer than like four syllables or maybe three i, I feel like that gets way, way too detailed like at that point it's just like go home and make it yourself i used to feel that way but uh yeah, I'm riding this train. Good for you. This high maintenance train. Leaning Thanks. into it. What are you doing uh, drinking decaf though? I just can't drink caffeinated coffee anymore, man. It s- sends me through the roof. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I mean, that, I, I'm I really thought... sensitive to caffeine. Yeah. Well, isn't that the point? Like, well, you wouldn't drink it if you weren't sensitive to it, right? Well, green tea is what I drink now. Like, tea gives me a, the boost, the gentle boost that I need, but coffee oh. makes me jittery and. 
If gotcha. I drink any of it past noon, I can't sleep. I'm just sensitive. <laughs> I'm a sensitive man. Yeah. Can't you tell by my order? <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, I know. Very delicate. You're all right. Well, cool. Now that we got that out of the way, uh, hopefully you can get some of that Christmas sale. Uh, this you, you got some? No, I just went to the beer store today and they didn't have any. Ah, okay. I'll, I'll try to find some for you. Um, but yeah, l- let's talk about Black Christmas. Um, this is a film I hadn't seen in a few years. How about you? I watched it last year, I want to say. No, maybe I watched it. Shoot. I can't remember. I watched it recently, though. Okay. Uh, well, cool. I mean, I I feel like, did we talk about this film before the podcast? Dude, I am freaking out because the, as I researched this film or prepared for this episode, I checked like three times to make sure we hadn't done an episode on it yet. Because I was like, I swear yeah, we've talked about this in detail before. I know. I mean, we talked about it a little bit on the Black Christmas 2019 episode, but... Mm, okay. Well, yeah, I wonder if there's like some other like top five or something that it might have come into. But yeah, it's so weird because I, I, I totally have like deja vu of talking to you about this. Um, Same. Me too. Hopefully I, I, we're not repeating an episode. <laughs> yeah, gonna like completely contradict our previous readings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I feel like this isn't a film I would have seen on my own. I, I feel like I only would have seen it because like you would have forced me to or something. So uh, just really weird that I'd seen this to begin with. But uh, okay, so you saw you saw this relatively recently. Um, genre wise, and I, I think this is like probably the trademark of this film is that it's considered one of the earliest slashers. Um, but I, I struggle with that because when you look at slasher. And the history, I mean, you've got, like, slashes going decades before this. You've got, like, Psycho, Peeping Tom, the whole Giallo stuff was going on. So uh, what's your take on why this is considered, like, one of the first slashers? I feel like, you know, Psycho and Peeping Tom, it's kind of getting there. I think Peeping Tom is much more so a typical slasher than Psycho is. But it's not quite there yet. I think the Giallo's really start to take it there and mm-hmm. the first widely considered the first shallow film is a movie called uh the evil eye also known as the girl who knew too much um and john saxon is in it who's also in this cool just and, a little fun fact and what year but was that those like if you watch 1963 okay so the roots were really starting in the 60s and if you watch Mario Baba's next, no, it's not his next film, maybe, but the year after that, he did a film called Blood and Black Lace in 1964, and that is just like, if you watch that, it's basically like, okay, I'm I'm watching a slasher. Yeah. Um, he also made a Bay of Blood in 1971, which is extremely similar to Friday the 13th and its sequels. Sure. So, I think that the basics existed early on, even in like the 20s and 30s. There's movies even like and then there were none the adaptation of the agatha christie story is kind of like okay there's a killer knocking people off one by one but i listened to a podcast called evolution of horror they did an episode on black christmas and they were talking about how this was maybe one of the first ones along with friday the third or texas chainsaw to bring like young adult or teenage main characters slash victims into the fold I see. Oh, okay. And I think that may be a big part of like, okay, we're starting to get closer to what really is a slasher in the eyes of most U.S. 
horror goer, horror fans. Okay, so like this one really influenced like the, those main characters that like we associate with slashers today. And yes, they yeah, and I think everything. And it very much starts the final girl trope. I think some that trope probably exists in yeah, Jalos and and the other earlier films too. Um, okay, but yeah, it's then it inspired supposedly Halloween, like. I don't know how much per se, but supposedly Bob Clark told John Carpenter when John asked about what he would do if he did a sequel to Black Christmas, he said it'd be some amount of years later and the guy would escape from a mental institution, (laughs) come back and start killing everybody and he'd call it Halloween. That sounds familiar. That's one of those stories that sounds made up to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's too close to yeah, that's that's really uh that's a nice coincidence. But but maybe that's true. And Bob Clark yeah. wasn't like, hey, he stole my idea. He was very much like, hey, that movie is his own, but Sure. Sure. Yeah, I could see that because uh, I mean I think a lot of people say the golden age of slasher starts a few years after this with the Halloween's Friday the thirteenth, Sightmare on Elm Street. And I think watching this you do see like some of the influences I also think when we talk about some of the ones from the 20s and 30s, which I'm only slightly familiar with where it's kind of people in a spooky house getting dropped off one by one, Mm -hmm. this seems to kind of maybe bridge that gap because it takes place in this old sorority house, which is vaguely spooky. Yeah. So it's kind of like hearkening back to some of those movies, but also bridging the gap to the teen slashers of the 78 through 84 that's really cool. That's a, yeah, age. neat way to tie those uh, two time periods together. Um, and I think it sounded like that was what was important to Bob Clark is showcasing this on like, uh, yeah, college students or like, yeah, that demographic as like, uh, I, I think I, I, I got the impression that he felt like they weren't getting the credit they were due in like other films. So he wanted to use this film to kind of show that like this group of characters can be like a lot more nuanced or more developed than like films have historically treated them. Yeah, right, and more intelligent. You know what's funny, talking about Texas Chainsaw and Black Christmas, they were both released, they had their initial release on the same day, October 11th, 1974. That's insane, isn't it? Isn't that weird? Black Christmas wouldn't go on to have a wide release until December 20th, like around Christmas time, but that initial release was on the same day. It's crazy. Two of the biggest, or the highest regarded slashers coming out on the same day, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, all right. So, yeah, it's definitely had an impact on the genre. It's got a huge legacy, pretty well known. I can't tell. Like, do you think it's still more of like a cult following film or do you feel like it appeals to broader masses outside of like core horror nerds like you? It's hard to know. It's been on so many lists, like well-regarded publications have put this on their best horror movies of all time list, best slashers of all time list. I think most people are aware of it. I do think perhaps maybe it's underseen just because of its age and maybe it gets overshadowed by other slashers. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I can't It's almost believe... 50 years old now. Two more I years. Know. I was just doing the math on that. That's insane. Uh, crazy. It came out such a long time ago. Um, when it came out, uh, some mixed reviews. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, I think now it's like getting the praise that um, a lot of people feel like it deserves. Um, financially, it did pretty well when it came out. It's on a budget of, I want to say, six hundred thousand or so. Did four million, so um, 
pretty decent from a box office. And, th- and that's, uh, to your point, it wasn't a wide release, so that's maybe even more impressive then. Well, they did have the wide release in December, just oh, okay. that initial date. But it Got was it. the third highest grossing Canadian film in Canada at the time. <laughs> wow. For that for that year or like ever? Ever. Wow. Damn, way to go, Canada. Good, yeah. Good on them. Um, and the script uh, was written by a guy named Roy Moore, and it sounds like a full book came out like two years later that goes like even deeper into the characters and stuff. Have you read that by any chance? I haven't. I'd be interested to read that. Me too. Me too. I think that'd be uh, really interesting to, to see. Um, there have been two remakes. You and I saw the 2019 one, which I think we both thought of pretty fondly. Then there was one in 2006. Did you see that one? I have never seen that one, and I want to correct something in the HMC canon. Okay. For years, whenever we bring up Black Christmas 2019, I'll always be like, we are the sole defenders of that movie. <laughs> but I checked our ratings. I gave it a four, but you gave it a two. Oh, boy, no kidding. So I think I tried to drag you into my <laughs> oh, fandom shit. of that movie. I'm basically the only person. Damn, I think hearing you say that uh, all those years made me think like I, I really liked it. So I was, I was yeah, so, I, I, I did my it. job. I convinced you. Shit, man. And that's Imogen Poots. I'm surprised I would have given that anything less than a five. That's uh, shocking. But um, Yeah, sad but true. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have to talk about that movie after seeing uh, this one again. Um, There's also a fan film. Yeah. Have you seen this? I haven't. It's called It's Me, Billy from 2021 on YouTube. I think it's about 40... 42 minutes or something. I It sounds awesome. I, I got to check that out. It, was, it just came out last year, I think. Um, it was kind of funded by like Indiegogo, I think. So uh, it could, could be pretty good. Yeah, sequel 50 years later that follows Jess's granddaughter. Jess's granddaughter. Okay, wow. Nice. I think that might have been most of what I had. I mean, this director, I, I feel like his work is kind of crazy. Like he did this film pretty early on. Then he does like a Christmas story. He did Porky's. So not like really a, a hardcore like horror guy. Like he's kind of all over the place. But some pretty big films under Bob Clark. Yeah, some really popular p- big parts of pop culture. He did a lot of more so B movies as well. And he did a couple of horror movies before Black Christmas. He did one called Death Dream that also came out in 1974 and he did one in 1972 called children shouldn't play with dead things that (laughs) is this odd little zombie movie that amy may of amy may pop art is a fan of oh interesting and she had i had emailed her like a decade ago maybe and was just like hey give me some horror recommendations so she sent that one to me and i did watch it and it's kind of good it's weird wow Okay, so yeah. this guy's early he's, roots were like horror, and then he went like he he went from he, there. Yeah, he. I saw a quote from him where he said, "I kind of wanted to get out of it, and yeah. he was never interested in the sequel to Black Christmas." Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm glad there was like a never like a Black Christmas two or three. Like I, I don't know if you could make this into like a, a franchise like with sequels outside of remakes. Can you? You surely could have. I, I think it would have cheapened it a little bit, but yeah, you easily could have. I know, and they were doing that with like so many films back then, so it was kind of a, a nice surprise to see they didn't try to do that with this film. So you think a lot of that was uh, based on his opinion? I'm not sure. I'm not, I think a lot of studios can go ahead and do the sequel without the director's say sure. or input or okay, so yeah, I don't really know. And it did well, but it wasn't like it crushed it at the box office. You know, it wasn't a mega hit. It's only 
in the years and years after that it started to be regarded as one of the best sure. horror movies of all time. Gene Siskel gave it 1.5 out of 4 stars and yeah. Yeah, just kind of had nothing nice to say about it. I know, I know. I'm surprised it was uh yeah, some of those early reviews are pretty pretty bad. Yeah, uh, he wasn't uh, the only one. There were plenty of prominent people shitting on it. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's hilarious. Um well, any other background you want to share? Um I don't think anything in particular. This is based on an urban legend called The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs that started in the 1960s, which I wanted to read up on more, but didn't have time. I know this is also kind of played upon in a movie called, um, oh my gosh, I just totally blanked on the name of the movie. It's from like 1979 with, oh my God, what's it called? When a stranger calls. Oh, when a stranger calls. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And and that's also someone's in the house. Yeah, it's a similar premise. Very yeah. different style of movie, but it's it's different. Cool. That's um, a fu- that's a fun twist. I, I like that where the scare is in in the house. That's that's really it cool. is. It's a fun little twist. Yeah. Um. um I don't have jump- too much more. Yeah, I'll do the Ohio connection, but first I want to thank some new patri- patrons. Nice. So thank you to our new Patreon supporters, Chris R., Emily S., Brittany N., and Matt M. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. I hope you're enjoying some of that bonus content out there. Next, our Ohio connection. As always, our friend Alex connects every movie to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, a great cozy little spot to go warm up in over this holiday season and get a great drink and some great food. Alex says Black Christmas is a slasher film produced and directed by Bob Clark. The story follows a group of sorority sisters who receive threatening phone calls and are eventually stalked and murdered by a deranged killer during the Christmas season. It stars Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, Andrea Martin, and Keir Dulia in the role of Peter. Dalia famously played astronaut David Bowman in the 1968 film 2001 A Space Odyssey, as well as its sequel. His other roles include the films David and Lisa, Bunny Lake is Missing, plus countless stage productions in New York City. Keir Dalia was born in Cleveland, Ohio. Whoa, nice, nice. That's yeah, awesome. fun one, unexpected. I totally thought he would go the Christmas story route and uh, reference that, uh, wasn't that shot in Cleveland or Tremont or something? Yeah, it was. I thought he would go that route, too. And then I got to wondering if maybe we already rent, went that route in our 2019 oh, Black yeah. Christmas episode. Yeah, Alex likes to kind of keep a step ahead of us. He keeps it fresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Great connection. All right. Well, are you ready to talk about the plot, review the film, go through some of the spoilers? I am. Let's do it. All right, cool. Hey, before we do, though, I got some tickets uh, to go see the Christmas lights at the zoo, so I, I might dive out, uh, j- jump out really quick and, and do that. Can I call you right back? Yeah, sure. Go ahead and dive out. All right, cool. I'll be back. Thanks. All Brian sorry about that uh Jesus man sorry I, I, I thought I'd be back like in an hour and here I am like three days later calling you back yeah what in the world happened man oh man uh you know the lights were great and, I, and then I, I came across the turtles and they were having 
sex. So I think, uh, you know, I thought I'd just hang out and watch them, you know, finish it. Didn't think it'd be polite to like leave in the middle of it. Um, but also didn't realize it'd be going on for three days. Apparently that's what turtles do for three days. <laughs> they just have sex. Did you know that? Is that a fact? <laughs> I wonder if that's true or not, but Barb, Margot Kidder's character Barb seems to think that that's true. (laughs) I have such a perhaps love-hate or just-hate relationship with Barb. Oh, in this movie? Yeah, I'll get that gripe out right now. Bob Clark took Roy Moore's script and added more humorous elements to it, and I'm not so sure that was a good idea. Hmm, okay. In my humble opinion. Okay, you think uh, we didn't need a comedic tone here? This should have no, at least not in the way that he he did it here. Okay, <laughs> all right, uh, yeah, let's go through this uh, and and we'll keep that in mind. So this movie okay. kicks off from the viewpoint of a person who sounds pretty out of breath, and he is looking at the sorority house where the residents are singing Christmas songs together and having a party. This person then enters through an open window in the attic. Meanwhile, inside the house, we meet the the sorority sisters who are having this party, and the party gets interrupted when the phone rings. And on the other end, we hear someone breathing heavily and then speaking pretty obscenely and threatening the women uh, in a, a number of different voices. Uh, we learn that these calls have been happening for some time. Um, and then that night, one of the residents, uh, a young woman named, named Claire, she goes up to her room to pack her suitcase and is attacked by an assailant who is hiding in the closet. What did you think of this opening? Very disturbing. I think that the voices on the phone, it's all one guy, supposedly, but he does a number of different voices. They're extremely disturbing. He's saying sexually offensive things to them. And then he finishes up his crazy scrambled rant and all these different voices with a clear and calm I'm going to kill you. And it just <laughs> yeah. is like, oh, shit, okay. Uh, what did you think of that phone call? Yeah, I agree. I think the phone calls throughout this film are like one of the main strengths. And uh, I think the guy's name, what is it, like Carl Manisco? Or no, Nick Man- Mancuso. Uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> that wasn't even close. <laughs> Carl, Nick, you know, same thing. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, what a vocal performance. Cause like, yeah, the, the calls are so creepy and like how they're produced and it sounded like the way they even recorded it. A lot of it was done like after the, the film had been shot and everything just like wild in, in the way they approached it. Like he was like on his head, like standing upside down half the time or doing a headstand, I guess, uh, recording this. Um, so they just got really creative and, and I think that carries with what you hear. Just like garbled nonsense. That's like really scary and creepy and gets under your skin. Yeah, he supposedly stood on his head to compress his thorax. Oh, oh my God. Carl Manesca. I can't even (laughs) breathe over here. I don't know why that got me so hard. Yeah, Yeah, I had no idea you could compress your thorax that way. I know. Damn, I've been doing it wrong this whole time. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Next time. Uh, Yeah, no, I I agree. It's terrifying. Really terrifying. Do you remember... Uh, we probably talked about this in the 2019 remake, but, um, I don't feel like, like, I I know they had phone calls, but nothing's ever been like this level of creepy, has it? In horror history? (laughs) The history of horror phone calls? (laughs) Exactly. Hmm. I'm like, what's another, like the other famous phone call is probably Scream, right? 
with the yeah right yeah and then there's when a stranger calls there's some creepy phone calls in one of the segments of mario bava's black sabbath Mm. um yeah i'm trying to think of other ones that have creepy phone calls i think this is definitely a prominent example an early example of that yeah i think it sets a very high bar and it's like really well done and still effective like so many years later it still sounds like pretty awesome Yes, yeah, still creepy. And I think Claire's kill was pretty creepy too. I really enjoyed the sound design and score there. Like the suspenseful score is happening. It's kind of like these grinding strings. Mm-hmm. But then as she approaches the closet, the score just drops out and we only hear a clock ticking. Right. And her just asking, "Who is it?" Yeah. It, it's it's a tense. It's it's not super drawn out, but the, I think it's timed pretty well. It's creepy. It works, yeah. And uh, I think as the viewer, what like we can't really make out like what she's seeing. Like I, I don't know. Could you like uh, see like clearly that there was someone behind there? I think the movie does a really good job of that, just keeping things obscure from view, and we see a general shape, maybe, or yeah. think we see something, but we aren't sure. It's pretty cool. I know. Yeah, that that maybeness is like very scary. Um, so the next day, Claire's dad arrives on campus. He's there to pick up Claire to take her home. But when she doesn't show up at their meeting spot, he goes to the sorority house to look for her. Um, I think this is where we start to get some of that comedy that you're not a fan of. So, uh, he meets the sorority mom who is what I thought was like a pretty funny person. Cause like every room or every corner she goes into, she's got like a bottle of like alcohol, like stashed away somewhere. Uh, which I, I don't know. I, th- I thought that was kind of funny. You, you didn't find that entertaining? It's fine, I guess, but they really milked it. Yeah. She uh, reminds me of John Candy in her, both her appearance and her acting style and humor. Was he, uh, he wasn't in like Animal House, right? No, I don't believe he was in Animal House. That's, are you thinking of John Belushi? Thinking of John Belushi, yeah. Talking about John Candy, uh, playing John Candy's Uncle Buck. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Uh, yeah, I, I guess, um, I, I thought like this is the female equivalent to like what we'd been seeing in movies like Animal House or something where you've always kind of like got a guy who's just like the local drinker, like always like, you know, trying to get a drink somewhere. Um, and, and this was just kind of like a, a female approach on that. Yeah, I just wasn't wild about it. Not only because it just seems like a weird tone, but also Claire has just been murdered and her dad is here looking for her. Yeah. And it's this whole wacky segment of like, oh, don't let her dad see that we've got like naked pictures. And it's like, oh, his daughter's dead upstairs in a rocking chair. (laughs) The movie's been fairly serious so far except from some zingers from barb i just why why (laughs) it felt out of place well it felt out of place to me and it took some of the wind out of the scares yeah i thought that actually worked because yeah as as the viewer we know like something really sinister is going on but there's a sense of calmness where like no one's alarmed and because no one has an idea what's going on here and so they're just like being themselves and i i think like as a viewer you're kind of struggling to like tie these elements together where there's just a father who came to find her daughter find his daughter and maybe she's at a party or somewhere else on campus no one's like really worried about it and they're still having a good time and drinking as people on the campus would be so it kind of like uh i think dilutes uh as the viewer like where you know like something is really fucked up is happening but also believing that the people just feel like it's every day i 
would agree with you if that was what was going on, but the dad knows something is up. Does he? So the juxtaposition just doesn't quite hit his heart because it's not like, oh, this house is going about their business and everyone's happy and having fun, but oh, upstairs something ominous is happening. He's there because his daughter didn't meet him and he's assuming something is up. So yeah. It would be different if the, we were, there was a bunch of like warm and cozy feelings with the girls having fun downstairs juxtaposed against Claire in the rocking chair upstairs. Right. Which they frequently show images of that are very haunting. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you can juxtapose her dad looking for her, which is a very serious thing, but like, oops, there's naked pictures on the wall against yeah. her ups. It just didn't didn't work for me personally. You know, uh, I, I don't know if the dad like maybe just wasn't like that great of an actor, but um, I know like this movie definitely makes a, a a comment, and we'll talk about it later on on like feminism and like men's role or, or like who they think they are when it comes to like protecting women or like yeah some kind of toxic masculinity there. Um, I didn't feel like he was like on super alarm. He seemed like more annoyed than like really like worried or anxious, and I thought that's why. You've got this scene where he's talking to the mother and she's more worried about like putting on a good image of the house and protecting him from like seeing what like these girls get up to almost like trying to hide like, you know, that girls can have fun or whatever. And he's just like they're kind of annoyed and wants to get out of there with his daughter. But did you feel like you felt like he had a sense of urgency or he was like scared or worried? I think any father, if their daughter and they play up Claire as a pretty straight shooter think any dad whose kid doesn't meet them at the designated point in time and doesn't know why and no one's seen her since the night before would have something in his mind of like something bad has happened really yeah yeah i don't know i mean like i think like this is the 70s it's not like people have phones and they point to like oh she's probably at this fraternity or she's probably with her boyfriend like they keep like pointing like three or four other places that she's likely to be so i don't don't know so yeah i guess it's hard for me to be in the shoes of that dad and like how worried is he versus just like ah, I gotta find my daughter because she's on this campus that's like unruly and filled with life to like deal with these dumb college kids or something but yeah maybe, maybe you're right maybe he's like really worried and this is just like annoying the shit out of him having to deal with this that'd be pretty frustrating um, <laughs> yeah but, whatever it is I just don't think it adds anything to the movie but I know sure. I'm perhaps in the minority there Sure. Well, and it also helps that Barb, the other character, uh, is drinking too. And, you know, I, I kind of understand this because it's like they, they're done with classes. They're all like heading home. So this is like a pretty merry time where I feel like people are more likely to be looking for a drink uh, to make the pain go away, that kind of thing, or celebrate. So anyway, though, this character that you don't like, um, she wanders upstairs looking for a cat, which I think the cat is also kind of what got clear because she thought the I think the cat ran towards that closet but um the house mother follows the cat's noise uh, thinking that it's in the attic she goes up there and she gets attacked she sees Claire's dead body with the plastic bag wrapped around her head rocking in a chair and then she gets attacked by the killer with a cane and he's living now apparently in the attic of the sorority house um anything special about that kill it's not the best kill in the world, but it's creepy. The suspense leading up to it is creepy, and every time we see Claire, it's scary. So yeah, to imagine yourself as the house mom looking in the attic and seeing Claire like that is pretty terrifying. 
Yeah, I, I like how they keep like jumping back to like everything will be normal like in other parts of the world, and then they'll just jump back to oh yeah, and there's this body with like a plastic bag over its head. So it's, yes. it's, it's a fun reference. Um, meanwhile, one of the sorority sisters, Jess, who kind of becomes our main character, it's revealed that she's pregnant and she's confronting her very moody pianist boyfriend about it and letting him know that she plans to have an abortion. He doesn't take it very well. He's very upset and he says that he can't be bothered with it right now, but he'll discuss it later with her. And I think this is where, uh, at least for me, like, you know, this movie and it's like stance on feminism, women's rights, uh, kind of started to like, like strengthen and like, okay, that's kind of what this movie is pointing to, um, which I don't know if I caught maybe the first time I saw this years ago, but would it, did, did that jump out to you here? Yeah, it stood out to me way more this time than ever before. Yeah. Um, and he has some lines that I think if they were even in a movie today that you'd call them on the nose. Yeah. He says, you can't make a decision like that. You haven't even asked me. Right. And she says, I wasn't even going to tell you. And he's like, don't you ever think about anyone but yourself? Do you know how important this afternoon is to me? Because he's got this crazy? piano recital. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty nuts. You think if Peter went to a coffee shop, he'd be the type of guy who'd order a decaf <laughs> oat milk <laughs> Half yeah. sweet pumpkin spice latte. Yeah, he'd probably add like a few more things on there. As well. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. I think you're in good company there. Um, yeah, I mean, to hear this stuff today, very shocking, especially, uh, yeah, I mean, from, from like what, what he's saying. And it's uh, cool to see like her with her like point of view. And I, I'm trying to like wonder in the 70s what the take was here and like what the intent was like with i i don't part of me thinks like his speech here wasn't as shocking back then as like you and i watching this today right well i think so because roe v v wade happened like the year before this so i think abortion was big on everybody's minds at least in the u.s i have to imagine a good chunk of that bled over into canada so interesting i think it's topical i think it's a hot button issue in 1974 perhaps even more so than now even though it's hard to imagine but mm -hmm. yeah i think it was still a big deal to have a character who was planning on having an abortion in the movie and to have them talk about it openly like this and debate it back and forth yeah okay cool so uh there was an intent here you think to like call out uh yeah women's rights uh reproductive rights and uh male t toxicity and in, in sometimes dealing with that I think so. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, crazy, crazy to see that going back to the seventies. Um, so Claire's father and boyfriend and some of the story sisters at this point have now realized that Claire isn't at any of the places where they might have expected to find her. So they go to the police station, and at first uh, they're dismissed. But I think Claire's boyfriend has a connection with one of the detectives. Is that right? Is that why they get taken in? I think they go back and they're like, dude, you got to take this seriously. Yeah. They talk to this guy, Nash, who's just the like stereotypical buffoon police officer. Then they finally get to talk to John Saxon, who is the lieutenant, and he takes it seriously. Yeah. And I think the only reason they get to talk to Saxon's uh, character is because of Claire's boyfriend. So I, I, th I thought like this whole scene was kind of painting like how these women are being dismissed but it's like, uh, if, you know, if, if it wasn't for the boyfriend being there, then like they wouldn't have been taken seriously by like, you know, being led up to the lieutenant and stuff. But yeah, I don't know. Sure. You, yeah. Uh, 
But anyway, um, yeah, the, uh, the detective, or the lieutenant decides, is he a lieutenant or is he a detective? He's a lieutenant? John Saxon's a lieutenant. Okay. He decides to help. Um, at the same time, a, a mother comes in and reports that her young daughter suddenly has gone missing. So the search party gets organized and they uncover a body of a young girl, dead, but there's still no sign of Claire. But now people are kind of on high alert and these search parties are continuing. Meanwhile, Jess has gone back home and after getting another threatening call, she alerts the police and they place a tap on the phone. Her boyfriend shows up to the house as well. And again, he's protesting the abortion, saying it's not like removing a wart, I think. And, um, you know, really like saying that, you know, let's get married. Um, and she's like, you know, just because you want to give up on your dream, it doesn't mean I want to and I don't want to marry you. And he's not taking it very well. Um, then uh, he leaves in a puff and the police are suspicious of him. Yeah, he calls her a selfish bitch. Oh, on his way out? Yep. Damn, yeah. Yeah, he's he's pretty... Uh, did, did you like this guy? Outside of your guys' shared <laughs> coffee taste? <laughs> Aside from our shared coffee taste, no, I don't care <laughs> Nothing for Nothing else in common, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, he's a character, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's moody, he's whiny. He... I don't know. It's interesting. By the end of the movie, I, I feel like there's also a commentary you could read into him as well. Okay, cool. Excited to hear what it is. Jess gets another call, and the killer's referencing some arguments that she and her boyfriend had. So I think it's starting to plant some seed in her mind and one of the sorority sisters that potentially the uh, there, there is some suspicion on the boyfriend, similar to like what the police are thinking. Meanwhile, some Christmas carolers show up and are singing outside when uh, another sorority sister who's sleeping upstairs gets murdered uh, after being stabbed with some uh, figurines in the room while she's sleeping. Um, and then another sorority sister who goes up there to check on her, we see the door close behind her and assume she gets murdered off camera. So um, Jess again gets a call, and um, this time the policemen are able to trace it, and they determine that the call is coming from inside the house, and they tell her that she needs to get out of there. Um, but shockingly, instead of getting out of there and walking out the door, she goes up to check on those two sorority sisters and finds both of their bodies arranged on a bed. And I, I think this is, we, we see this in Halloween later, right? Like this whole idea of staged dead bodies. Exactly, yeah. This yeah. is very much, people think of Halloween as the like template of a slasher and it very much is but it it very much influenced by this movie yeah yeah you see some roots here uh what, what did you think of the kills of these two sorority sisters they're they're really like i mean you rarely see anything but did, did you appreciate that or did you want to see more i kind of did and i enjoyed the fake out with barb and she says she's having a bad dream that someone was in her room and she has an asthma attack over it they also use that as a vehicle to garner some sympathy or empathy with Barb after she's been a bit of a drunken jerk. Yeah. She's scared. She's having this asthma attack, and Jess goes and comforts her. They do a good job of making the relationships between the girls feel really authentic. Yeah. Jess is rebuking Barb or rolling her eyes at Barb, but also being kind to Barb and trying to, like, keep Barb from doing something she'll regret later and then going to help her and kind of stroking her hair 
Mm-hmm. So I think the girls' relationships are pretty authentic. It feels like, and it also feels very natural. It doesn't feel like we're being shoved down the throat with like any sentimentality or like long conversations about uh, how much they love each other or anything. It just right. It's authentic and nuanced without really going out of its way to be so. It's just very exactly. natural, like you said. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I don't like Barb. I, I I like her a lot. I think she's hilarious, and uh, yeah, she's just drunk, and uh, yeah, she's dealing with the fact that like her mom doesn't want to hang out with her for the holidays and stuff, and just kind of like being obnoxious. Uh, I don't know. I I, I kind of enjoyed her antics. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like her as a character, but the, she just goes a little too far. She feeds the alcohol to little kids. She tells the cops the wrong number of the sorority house so she can. <laughs> Put the word fellatio in the number, yeah. which is funny, but you're getting these like creepy calls to the house. You don't want the cops to have the number to the, to the sorority house if they find yeah. anything. But, it yeah. just gets a little outlandish to me. But, but are, these are college kids, right? They're not like uh, full grown, <laughs> like mature adults, are they? I mean, I get the impression that they're early 20s. Okay. 21, 22. Yeah. And Yeah. It's just, just aggravating to me. I, I like Margot Kidder and the role. I, I hesitate to say I don't like the character. I think my focus is that I don't like the humor that Bob Clark infused into the movie. Okay, okay, got it. Yeah, uh, I I thought it was just kind of like a, um, showing that, like, yeah, I, I thought it was kind of showing... Maybe that women can be like funny drunks uh, in case like that. Like, I wonder if like at that time you had a lot of films where you're mostly seeing men in that type of role. And now you're getting to see like women being in a, in a lighter mood, you know, hit, hitting the bottle, having a fun time. Um, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, and so many like college comedies focusing on men have one yeah. who's just kind of the class clown or the... Uh, comedic relief so exactly it's cool to see a cast of women treated equally and barb to fill that role right i hear what you're saying i appreciate yeah. it sure Good yeah defense. that's kind of where i thought they might have been going but anyway uh yeah so those two have been killed we see their bodies jess uh sees or hears someone whispering to her from uh the closet and sees an eyeball and so she runs and this person that we can't see chases her she locks herself in the basement and sees from the window her boyfriend looking outside uh, the window, kind of looking for her. He breaks the window and comes into the basement uh, and tries to embrace Jess, but she ends up attacking him and murdering him before fainting. Um, do you think she did that because she thought he was the killer? I believe so. Okay. Okay. So it like got into her head that he's potentially it's potentially this guy. Yeah, he had done enough creepy things, and he kind of came down the steps at one point, and we were just like, oh, I was just having a little nap upstairs. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> that was bizarre, yeah. <laughs> and he really, she, I can't remember if she found it or the police found it. I think the police found it. He's totally smashed his piano after his recital that went oh, horribly yeah. wrong. He's become increasingly hostile towards her with this whole abortion conversation, so... Right. I think she feels pretty scared and threatened, and yeah, I assume that she thought it was him. Okay, I couldn't tell if uh, she thought it was him or he just pissed her off enough where she's like, "I'm just gonna kill him anyway." Uh, you know what? Screw yeah. this. <laughs> Someone's gotta die tonight. <laughs> yeah, uh, but anyway, uh, so the cops come there. 
they find the boyfriend dead and Jess is unconscious. They assume that the boyfriend was the killer as they had suspected and they sedate Jeffs and leave her lying on one of the beds in one of the rooms and then they all leave the house and go back to the station. I think one like stays outside the house on guard and the movie closes with us hearing the killer's voice from the attic so he's still there and seeing the bodies again of Claire and the house mother in the attic um and the credits start rolling over like a silent uh screen what'd you what'd you think of this ending no not a silent screen the phone was ringing oh yeah right i forgot the phone's ringing so who he's calling again he's calling again and he you can interpret the movie as him only calling right after he kills somebody so this ending with the phone ringing yet again could mean that he has killed jess because they're all kind of in this room with her. They've sedated her, like the cops have arised, arrived and everything. But Claire's dad is now in shock. So the lieutenant is like, he's chasing out the press who have arrived, somebody else and other officers trying to get Claire's dad to the hospital. So they all wind up just leaving her there, and she's left on her own in this her bedroom sedated. Yeah. Then there's one cop on the front porch, but... We hear the phone ring as we, you know, show the outside view of the house. So we could assume that Jess has been murdered. Was that the pattern throughout the film is every every time someone was murdered, a call would come? Yeah, it's not super obvious, but you can, if you kind of do the math, it, it adds up. Okay. One of the calls where it seems like nobody has dead, the first call is presumably the 13-year-old girl in the park. Ah. It's the reason for that call. Interesting. Cool. And all the calls are just, like, super creepy throughout the whole film. You got, like, multiple voices. Like, what do you think? This this guy, who I think, like, they in, informally call Billy, uh, like, some kind of, like, schizophrenic or something, or um, something going on, split personalities, maybe? Perhaps. And he does a lot of Agnes. It's Billy. And I think there's one quote in there that he says something about, what did you do with the baby, Billy? So you can kind of piece together the scrambled stuff of what he says and maybe assume that in his past he killed his baby sister Agnes. Wow. Because it sounds like his voices are like his mother and father yelling at him. Oh, interesting. I don't know for sure if that is correct, but yeah, it's interesting to find that meaning in there. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I bet if we watch that movie from uh, 2021, they'd probably go into Billy a little bit more, build out that character a little bit. Yeah, and a weird kind of parallel to the abortion plot line as well oh sure yeah killing right. an actual killed a baby. living baby interesting wow yeah that's fascinating um i also thought like just uh how anti-climatic like um you have a great like third act where she's like in the basement you're scared for her um but like the way it ends where like she's in a house by herself with the killer phones ringing and there's like no music and just like the credits are rolling uh, that, that like, I thought it hits really hard. What would you think of that? It, yeah, it hits hard. It's very haunting. You, they kind of pan out on Claire's face with the plastic bag over it in the window. And before the phone rings, you just hear the like winter wind howling. Oh yeah. And it's very unsettling and creepy and sad. Yeah. Tragic. Uh, so yeah. What would you think of this film? I really like it. A lot. Uh, the humor is my only complaint. I think other than that, it's really good, pretty tight and efficient. It gets maybe a little slow somewhere in the second act, but 
through some of that, it's fleshing out Jess as a character and her relationship with Peter and trying to increase her suspicion of Peter. So I don't think much of its time is wasted. Uh, I also think it endears you to the girls in the house a little bit. I couldn't help but think that this last moment, too, where Jess is kind of alone, you could kind of read abortion into that, too. Like, the men are feeling like they're very much a part of this and they have the agency, but at the end of the day, it's the woman who has to deal with the repercussions on her own by herself. And they sedate her, kind of taking away her agency. So it's just kind of interesting in a movie that's kind of about abortion that they, she's essentially the one on her own at the end. Right. Which I think... Doesn't end well for her. It doesn't end well for her. (laughs) Yeah. And I think you could really tie that to, okay, Peter, I know you're concerned and this is your baby too, but at the end of the day, this is my body. Right. On me and me alone. And I think that's an interesting way to read into them all leaving her alone in the room at the end. Sure. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Fits thematically. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think this is really well done. Uh, the timing is really good. On that theme, like, I, I think the the movie is really, I, I don't know if you felt like this way, but is it really critical of men and their role in society and their feeling of like they're here to like protect? people when actually like most of the harm in this film is coming from like first it's it's a dude in the attic who's like reeking uh he was was, like yeah murdering people in in this house this group of women who are otherwise okay until this person comes and then like they're trying to seek help and these men are coming and either dismissing them or think they're helping but they actually like as you mentioned like they sedate her and like leave her completely like unarmed there um, so is it kind of like pointing to the fact that like men have this illusion where like they're saving the world or something and like can protect people, but like they're doing exactly the opposite? I don't know. I think you could read that into it. I don't think that m- the movie is trying to make that point so much because I do think it paints Lieutenant, uh, <laughs> I was going to say Lieutenant Saxon. <laughs> What's <Yeah>. his name? <laughs> <I'll call> that. <laughs> Lieutenant Fuller. Yeah, I think it paints John Saxon as a good guy who is trying to help, but mm. that doesn't necessarily negate your point. Yeah, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> exactly, so you could be right. Yeah, like yeah, he tries to help. Uh, I think he has a conversation where he's like, uh, I don't know, that he has a conversation with Jess where he's like, "You got to tell me what's going on with you and the boyfriend." And yeah, he he's not like critical of her and seems to be on their side, but ultimately he's not there on time to prevent it um and yeah at the end he like abandons her to like yeah who, who leaves someone sedated like that in, in a bed in a house where he just had all these murders or disappearances happen pretty rough and they're so confident that it's peter everybody is yeah yeah exactly yeah i think if you wanted to you could even read into okay peter's the other side of the abortion argument mm-hmm And he's kind of saying, this is my baby too. And like, how can you do this without me or without telling me? And so if you're a progressive person watching this movie, it's easy to demonize him and be like, okay, he's the bad guy. And yeah, he very well may be the killer. And you find out he's not in the end. And he dies just because of the presumption that he's 
a killer or, or evil just because he feels this way when you could, if you wanted to, you could interpret that as, hey, the other side of the argument isn't evil, but from their eyes, they're just as much a part of this too. Maybe it's a narrow scope of view that he has, but it's so easy to want Peter to be the bad guy. Oh, and yeah. he is in a sense. I'm not saying he's right or that he should be calling her a selfish bitch. Yeah. But I don't know. I think maybe there's something you could read into that too. Of like, okay, he was misguided completely and a jerk, but he wasn't the killer. Guy. He almost oh. wanted him to be, but it wasn't him. And then the real bad guy actually has maybe killed a baby a living baby it's just i don't know quite how to read into all that but there's a lot there interesting yeah yeah man that whole angle about billy being a a baby killer uh that's fascinating uh because yeah then i wonder if like they're comparing like is it different if it's a a man who can like make that decision to kill a baby and uh but if a woman goes to do it then it has like be confronted in a different way so yeah really interesting commentary and yeah, it's just so hard for me to imagine that that was the purpose. Cause especially I don't like, have you read a lot of, I, I haven't seen like Bob Clark or anything like he's come out and said, but, um, has there been any verified intent that like the, the, that was like the story that they wanted to include or talk about or what their aim was here? No, I honestly, I hadn't really put that all together. I was starting to piece it together in my head on this watch that yeah. maybe he killed the baby, his little sister or whatever. And then Evolution of Horror, their episode on it, kind of brought it all together for me too because they kind of had drawn that same conclusion. Yeah. I There's like 80% of me though that's like convinced that this was all an accident. Like maybe to your point, like it was just topical because that law had passed here before and so he decided to include that character here. But to think that Bob Clark would be trying to uh, bring up like a debate here and like tie the killings or, or the victims or the actions to like that larger s- social topic uh i feel like is giving him a lot of credit um I, I what do you think like do you think it was pretty purposeful like to take the billy side of things and bring it into that argument or just in general to have an abortion theme it, in the movie in general the the abortion theme that like maybe uh it ties to, like the the killer's motives or like that there was even like some kind of intended commentary around um like a, a woman's reproductive rights uh, and how that can be like a, a metaphor for like the killer or for uh, this guy in being judged. I'm not sure. I really couldn't say. But I yeah. think with movies, there's a lot you can, whether or not the intention was there, I used to feel the opposite way of like, everyone thinks too much about movies and reads too yeah. much into it. But here we are five years later. <laughs> I think exactly that, that whether or not it was intended, if decades of people can read a thing into a film then it's there yeah so i, I don't I, know that people specifically have tied the billy thing to abortion uh, sure I, ha- I have no idea if there's any merit to that argument at all but got it yeah interesting to think about really is yeah and it really makes me wonder about the 2019 film because i know that was like way different in how like it handled uh issues it was way more like over the top in terms of like being on the nose about like yeah, this is a movie all about like feminist issues uh, and bringing that you know in, into uh, the storyline, um, and I, I think we appreciated it at that time. 
that angle of it. But it's really cool to see it in this film where it's like, I don't know, it's it's kind of subtle, right? Uh, versus the 2019 film. I mean, anything is subtle compared to Black Christmas 2019. <laughs> but it's also a little more heavy handed than I remembered it being. Sure. I mean, they're having deep conversations about it and he says very specific things that somebody who was pro-choice would clearly be like oh no you you're wrong or yeah somebody maybe even who's pro-life might be like oh gee she's yikes yeah even I, in the 70s i think so yeah okay boy you know and i'm on jess's side but did she really have to tell him the day before <laughs> Like the day of his piano recital. I'm I'm kind of on uh, decaf oat milk latte's side with that one. The timing wasn't great. Yeah. The timing is not great. Well, <laughs> Jess should have at least waited a day. She she was trying. It sounded like she was trying to like tell him, but he was just like uh, absorbed in rehearsing for like That's days. true. He, w- he wasn't having a discussion. And time is yeah. of the essence with that stuff. So Right. right. <laughs> with that stuff. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> handling this delicately. I know. Yeah. Hey, about that recital, uh, I didn't think it went that bad. I couldn't tell what the piece was. It was like very ominous sounding. Uh, I couldn't tell if that was purposeful or not, but um, yeah, it sounds like it didn't go well for him, right? Yeah, I thought it kind of rocked, but he was all sweaty yeah. and frustrated. <laughs> yeah, that's so he must have had caffeine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, must have. Someone, someone got pissed at his antics. Like, fuck this guy. That's if I was ever ordering like decaf all the time. I, part of me would always be worried that like, how are you gonna know it's decaf? Like, someone's gonna fuck with you at some point, right? I yeah. I mean, I I know if it happens to be my mistake, I know I fuck up all my recitals. Oh, <laughs> you know the reason. Um, well, the other thing uh, that I thought was really good about this movie is the soundtrack. Very minimal in terms of like how often a score comes in, and I think that gives the movie like a really kind of uh, realness to it. What, what did you think of that aspect? Like, did it feel like underproduced too, or do you feel like it added to the 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 way it played I, out? I agree. I had like a couple of notes about the score, but then at the end of the movie, I couldn't even remember what the score sounded like. Right. So I do think it's used sparingly, and it's also very ominous and abrasive at times, so I think it's done really well. Yeah. The movie has a good mix of just silent creepiness and you letting, imagining what's going on. I mean, even just never really seeing Billy is a huge deal. Right. Instead, only hearing these god-awful voices, it really gets your imagination going. I think that's why this movie is so scary, because it's not showing you as much as other slashers down the line do. Yeah, yeah, and a really bold move uh, for the the film to take that approach, which just makes me really surprised about some of the reviews it it got. I don't know what else, like, people are looking for, because, yeah, that's such a unique approach. Yeah, I was surprised even at the time, like... I would have thought it would have been even scarier in the 70s. It's scary yeah. now to me. I know. I know. I, I kind of forgot a little bit how it ended. So I was, I was that third act uh, took me for a ride when she's like. The third act is around. tense, especially when they realize, okay, like tell her to walk out the front door and you're like, just get out the fucking door. But she's trying to call up to Phyllis and yeah. Barb. And it's just, it's tense. <laughs> yeah. It's sense, yeah, yeah. You're like, it's like one of those rare times going to scream at the TV, like get out of there. Um, yeah. What did you think uh, acting wise uh, holds up? Yeah, I think the acting is really good. Uh, Jess 
and this was something that they commented about in Evolution of Horror too. Olivia Hussey is way more formal than the other characters <laughs> in her performance, but it kind of works if you think of the sorority house as kind of a ragtag group of girls of divergent backgrounds and all getting along and supporting each other. So, right. Um, yeah, I can't complain like, about it. I think the acting was pretty solid. I agree. I agree. And I, I like Margot. Uh, I think she stands out a lot. Um, yeah, uh, Olivia, interesting. I mean, she's a British actress and her accent comes off pretty strong here. So I think that gives her another level of formalness. Right, um, right. I, was she supposed to be British in this film? I would have to assume, but they don't go too much into her background. I, I, it's hard to pass that accent off as American. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, well, cool. Anything and John else? Saxon's a great cop. He's a cop in everything. <laughs> oh, okay. That's just his role. That's what he was in he was the a... Giallo as well? Uh, well, I actually haven't seen that one, but he was a cop in Nightmare on Elm Street as okay. Heather Langkamp's dad. He was a cop in Tenebre, another Giallo by Argento. Uh, that's just, that's his role. He rocks it. Yeah, yeah, he pulls that off really well. Um, and I yeah. love the dynamic at the police station between him, the other lieutenants, the uh, the sergeants. Uh, it's just, yeah, kind of fun to see their, their hijinks. Yeah, again, got a hair too jokey for me there, but but I do like it to an extent. <laughs> I like the idea of like a buffoon cop and yeah, the other is always being like, oh man, this guy is like fucking everything up. Yeah, yeah. When he's like, if you fuck this up, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, he literally <laughs> says that at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought the comedy gave gave it like a realness, like the, yeah, the, the, the reliance on alcohol and like kind of that woman like stashing it away everywhere. Um, the one girl just like randomly being really drunk. Uh, that one cop being like an idiot. Uh, and, and like the prank that they play on him with like the Flacier number. It just gave it like a sense of like a, a reality, like you're dealing with a bunch of college kids and you're on a campus and this is what's going on. Sure, sure. I'll buy that. Yeah. All right. Well, anything else you want to call out? That's it. You want to jump to the rating then? Let's do it. All right. How many sorority girls with plastic wrapped around their head would you give this? Oh, man. I give it four out of five sorority girls with plastic wrapped around their head. I really like it, but, yeah, not a fan of the humor. Uh, It takes me out of the movie. And it does maybe, even though I do think a lot of good character development is happening and everything, get slightly slow somewhere in the middle. But I still really enjoy it and think it's one of the best Christmas horror movies out there. What what about you? What's your rating? Nice. Man, I, I was, uh, yeah, I, I loved it way more than I thought I would. I went, uh, it was hard for me to find a fault here, so I, I gave it a five. Uh, nice. Yeah, sorority girls with the plastic wrapped around their head. Like, this was solid film. I actually thought the timing, like, how long is this movie? Like, hour 20, hour 10? Good question. It's it's a good runtime. I would. It's no more than an hour and a half, I'd be sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I felt like it felt, like, very tight in terms of, like, uh, very like conversation driven, um, and just like events like unfolding at a very like kind of uh, slow pace, and where like half people think everything's fine, and we as a viewer like know like everything's like going to shit, and like something really sinister is happening. Uh, so re- I just love the way it played out and uh, well acted, and cool to see like that message kind of like embedded in the plot line in in a kind of a smart way. So I, I thought it was a lot of fun. Cool, man. Good. I'm glad you gave it a five. I feel like a little low for giving it a four because I do really love a lot of it. And I think it's scary. Yeah. Did you think that the guy that they showed 
there's a glimpse of the murderer when he kills Barb. Do you think he looked a lot like Peter? Uh, which Peter? Oh, he the Peter in the movie? He looked a lot like Jess's boyfriend. <laughs> I think that's someone we knew in real life. <laughs> uh, wait, when Barb gets killed while she's sleeping, you can see him a little bit? Yeah, you can see his face, basically. with a. am sure probably in the 70s on the screens and TVs they were watching, maybe it wasn't as clear, but... yeah. On a modern television, it, it looks a lot like Peter. Uh, they they no insist that it's not, and it's a camera operator. But interesting, yeah. Is that I could have sworn it was Kira Delia. Yeah, is there is that character like even uh, like is an actor even like credited in the cast for playing that? There role? is, yeah. I mean, Nick Mancuso, <laughs> Carl Menisco, just like <laughs> oh, Menisco, whip yeah. that out confidently. <laughs> so Nick Mancuso does the voices, but I think the camera operator, I don't remember his name. Is the POVs and like the one shadows and hands? I think anything you see on screen is him. Uh, but okay. I don't know. I'm still a little suspicious of that. It looks so much you still, like. Here. You still think it might have been Peter? Yeah, I do. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, we'll keep that theory out there. That's that's was a, a potential. Well, uh, I'm really glad you gave this a five, man. That's that's great. Yeah, happy for sur- you. Thanks, man. I, yeah, I was really surprised how much I, I like this film. And yeah, it might be one of my favorite horror films. It's it's really well done. Good, good Awesome. It, really interesting. Uh, great. Well, any other comments, questions, feedback? That's it, man. All right. Well, that's been our review for Black Christmas from 1974. Oh, one last question for you. Um, watching this again, does it change your opinion of the 2019 remake? No. Okay. I, I think the 2019 remake is even more justified in being as woke and topical since this is takes on such a hot button issue in abortion the in abortion the year after Roe v Wade. I, yeah, I think it's a little unfair that I just yeah, I always am on my little soapbox that, that movie got treated unfairly and the people were so outraged at the commentary that. Yeah, I don't know. It was on on the nose for sure, but I think that's okay. Oh yeah, yeah, that that is okay. You know, I I think my interpretation when I saw that film was that it was taking an old film and adding in that commentary. And I think going back and seeing this and seeing that it already had like commentary and it was like uh, included in like a really effective and smart way, kind of makes me feel a little bit less. Which I guess I wasn't even that high on the twenty nineteen one. But I, I feel like the original like already had such great commentary in it and was like pretty woke for its time and it still yeah. like holds up. So like did you need a remake of a film that was like already like pretty good? Sure. Yeah. And I think that you if I remember that episode correctly, you weren't really upset about the commentary. You just thought it was a crappy movie oh, in yeah. general. Sure. So I, I might add that to the list of crappy and maybe unnecessary commentary <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah but it'd be interesting to, to watch that again after having seen this now yeah one uh, day we'll get around to the 2006 version sure yeah yeah black xmas <laughs> yeah <All right. laughs> cool sounds good all right well that's it for our discussion on black christmas if you enjoyed our episode please leave us a five-star rating on apple Podcasts. that'll help other people find our show and we always appreciate the feedback if you want to join the discussion, you can find our social links at horrormovieclub.com or shoot us an email at podcast at horrormovieclub.com. We're going to be announcing next week's movie on Facebook and Twitter in case you want to watch it before the next episode. We're also on Discord with uh, some other horror fans, so you can find the link for that 
on our websites. You can also find the link to our Patreon page um, on our websites. Our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. You can check her out on Etsy.com and find some cool merchandise for our show. And until next time, have a great holiday and make sure to keep those windows locked because Santa might not be the only one who is trying to break into your house this holiday season. You might have someone else creeping in there. Uh-oh. Someone. Hey. Oh, yeah. That guy, I, I think he might have had asthma or something. He's, he sounded like he was struggling a bit. He had some real issues, yeah. Yeah. Maybe he was just looking for that inhaler the whole time from Barb. Maybe Barb stole it from him. Yeah. That's what he was trying to get the whole So time. Barb. <laughs> I know. Going around stealing people's inhalers. Yeah. <laughs> 